Welcome back to Evan Space Dermatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 104, Cerilimab for Relapse of Polymyalgia Rheumatica During Glucocorticoid Taper, the Sapphire Study. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2023. Now, I apologize. I've been gone for a little while. Uh, the lead up to ACR is always a busy time for me, and then we had a big deadline in the vasculitis community. But I'm hoping to be back now, and I should have the next couple months covered with a number of pretty exciting episodes. We're going to be covering this study, a number of debate shows about various important topics, um, one with uh, Bhaskar Dasgupta, who's the lead author on, author on this study, coming up in two weeks, um, some about Bayesian reasoning. And then I will be covering <laughs> dipping my toes into the COVID-19 uh, d- uh, issues again, which uh, much to my, my great regret. But looking forward to talking about all of those things. Now, today, though, I want to talk about this study, and th- this is a real Really interesting trial. I was actually primed to dislike this study. So if you follow my newsletter, highly recommend it to everybody. Please go to ebroom.com to find it. But if you follow my newsletter, I did sort of a preemptive evaluation of what this trial could mean. Um, and I wound up being not too far off, but uh, it was better in a lot of ways than I expected. So I'm kind of excited to talk about it today because I actually do think it's practice changing. Um, so with that, let's get right into it. Now, now Sapphire was a phase three multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Uh, involving patients who had a polymyalgia rheumatica. You're probably asking, which patients with polymyalgia rheumatica? Well, they were the ones who had at least one disease flare during glucocorticoid taper, at, and they had to be over 7.5 milligrams um, per day of prednisone when they had their flare. Now, I, 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 I like this group. I mean, this is the people for whom I am looking to find another agent, right? You know, when people flare around two milligrams, I just say, okay, go back to three milligrams. We'll, we'll try again next month. But when people flare above seven and a half milligrams, that's when you say, all right, this person might have some refractory disease. Now, patients had to have received at least eight weeks of glucocorticoid treatment already. So this couldn't be someone who was, you know, just sort of persistent, right? Sometimes you start people on, on steroids, their symptoms don't go away entirely. And, you know, it, but maybe a little more time would do it. No, but these people had to have been treated for at least eight weeks uh, before the, the flare occurred. So that's good, too. Everyone had to have an elevated inflammatory marker, which makes total sense. And then you couldn't have GCA, RA, or other inflammatory arthritis. All of, all of that makes sense and works for me. Now, patients were assigned to a a one-to-one ratio to receive a 52-week, twice-monthly subcutaneous injection of cerulimab um, with 14 weeks of prednisone or placebo cerulimab and 52 weeks of prednisone. Now, I want to pause on that for just a minute because I I think people often gloss over these little sort of nitty-gritty things, but this is a very different prednisone regimen. So in table S1 in the supplement, you can actually see what people got. So people in the cerulimab group, um, essentially by week 13, they were down to one milligram of prednisone. They went 15 milligrams um, on day zero and then 15, 14... Um, 12, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, just straight down every single week. Now, that, that is much more aggressive than I do for this disease usually, or that I think probably just about anyone does for this disease. And so up front, I actually really like that. We're actually establishing a difference here. You know, it's not just that you're successfully tapering if you get Cerulimab. Um, you're successful tapering much, much, much quicker and getting Cerulimab compared to placebo on a 52-week taper. Now, the 52-week taper is, you know, probably more or less what a lot of people do. I'd say that I'm a little bit quicker on my PMR tapers. My, my standard taper is about six to nine months. So this is a this is a 12-month taper, but it, it looked pretty reasonable for that approach, you know, getting down to 10 by uh, two or three months in 
and then going one milligram per month thereafter. So but I, I actually thought that the placebo tapers in this study were great. Um, the inadequate standard of care and weird steroid tapers have been kind of a beef of mine lately, but uh, I, I thought they did a good job of it here. Now, the primary outcome was was kind of complicated, so let me walk you through it. So at 52 weeks, you had to be in sustained remission, which sounds like a simple thing, but there's a bunch of components to how they define sustained remission. So you had to have first the resolution of signs and symptoms of PMR and the normalization of the CRP at week 12. All right. So at first glance, that seems pretty reasonable, but like, I mean, come on, resolution of the CRP, every single human who takes Strelimab resolves their CRP. So you're already kind of seeing how they're a primary endpoint, and you start to little shenanigans with the IL-6 inhibitors, which we've seen in a lot of trials before. Now, that was one component of the primary income outcome. So you also had to have the absence of a disease flare. Okay, seems reasonable. Um, sustained CRP normalization, again, eh. <laughs> and then you had to have adherence to the prednisone taper regimen from 12 to 52. So I, I think this is overall a very stringent outcome measure. You know, you had to have essentially, um, you, had to, you had to become normalized by week 12, then you couldn't have any flares, you had to have, couldn't have any inflammatory marker or any CRP bump, and you had to stay on your, your protocol uh, steroid taper. So I, I would say that that's a pretty stringent outcome measure. I, I don't think many of my patients with PMR um, meet all of those, even patients with PMR who I would say, you know, had a pretty good run. So I would say it in a way it's almost too strange as compared to how we, we do this in clinical practice, but I'll talk to that more a little bit later when we go over the magnitude of benefits. All right, now flares, you know, I said that you can't have a disease flare. So what's a flare? So they define flare as the recurrence of symptoms or an elevation of the ESR um, resulting in an increase of the glucocorticoid dose. So there's a lot of investigator, investigator influence on that, right? And so then the automatic question you have to ask is, did the investigators know about the CRP? And in this case, they did not. So the investigators were blinded to the CRP, but they were not blinded to the sedimentation rate. And this is kind of a strange thing that they did in this paper. And let me walk you through these kind of wonky sentences and the methods that I think are quite silly. So they said, you know, because Strelimab directly affects the CRP, the measurement of CRP was performed in a blinded manner. Yeah, I like that, of course. And then they said, they go on to immediately say, the measurement of the ESR was locally processed to aid investigators in their monitoring for potential disease flares. Okay, so they're, on the one hand, acknowledging that Cerulimab normalizes the CRP regardless of whether people feel better, right? Plenty of people can feel, can have real flares of GCA, real flares of RA while they're on an IL-6 inhibitor. You know, they can be inflamed, they can feel terrible, but their inflammatory markers won't bump, right? And so that, that, that makes this a surrogate outcome me measure, and it's a bad surrogate outcome measure for a trial. Because the CRP doesn't really reflect true disease activity, in my opinion, in this disease. And then, so the, when you don't see it, then you're not going to call it a flare, right? Even if patients are flaring. And this is a problem. Like the investigators knowing what the sedimentation rate is, is quite silly because the, 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 the trialists admitted up front that it's bad. <laughs> That's why they blinded the CRP. But then it gets even better because then they go on in the very next paragraph. And they say, you know, the sponsor and efficacy assessor were unaware of post-baseline CRP and ESR values to prevent the unmasking of the known effects of IL-6 receptor inhibition on these acute phase reactants. Okay, so then like literally the third sentence, they again acknowledge that, you know, IL-6 inhibition lowers the ESR, and that's a problem because A, it will show uh, that the patient is on the drug, and B, I mean, it, it makes it almost, 
you know, a lot harder to say that someone on the drug on Cerilimab is flaring because they're not going to have the inflammatory markers go up. So I thought this was like a very funny couple of paragraphs. They're like, yeah, you know, CRP affects things. So we blinded you to that. But then we didn't blind you to the ESR. We're going to let the investigators know about that. And yeah, that's a big problem. So we're going to have a, a, a blinded assessor. But like at the end of the day, the, the treating physician is the one who is talking to the patient, reporting these symptoms and has a big influence on whether or not someone has a flare. So I, I think that there's probably some unblinding, probably some unmasking. And I think the fact that the acute phase reactants were included in the outcome measures here means that there's some artificial masking of flares in that group. All right. So that, that's sort of your caveat going forward. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest weakness of this trial. Moving on, there's another big issue. Um, you know, so this trial was initially started pre-pandemic. They're shooting to get 280 patients into it, but you know, pandemic, uh, hard to enroll. It's hard to enroll in PMR trials anyway. And so they actually wind up, wound up discontinuing this study early. Now that's bad because usually when you discontinue a study early, you wind up having kind of wide confidence intervals and you know, the, the, you wind up missing, um, treatments that could, could work. You wind up, wind up not seeing them. My favorite example of this is just the TOC study in, uh, in, uh, Takiyasu arteritis. You know, they, they, they looked at the IL-6 inhibitor and they only enrolled like 20 or 30 people. They didn't see a difference, but if you look at the K curves, it looks to me like there's probably a benefit there. So I think it's just underpowered. So anytime that you stop a study early, you underpower the study by definition, because you're not going to reach the power that you're shooting for. But then, you know, you're also increasing the probability that you find some erroneous result. So if you stop a study early, then you're actually opening, you know, it's more likely on the random sort of walk of statistical noise. It's more, it's, it's more likely that you will not only not find a difference, but also more likely that you could find a difference. So, uh, just a little caveat there. Um, um, I actually don't think it wound up mattering, but so, um, I think those are the main things in the statistics. So let's get into the patients. So they even, even stopped in the trial early, they did get 118 patients, which is just a lot for a PMR study. The, the typical patient who got in this trial was around 70 years old. There's a slight male, uh, uh, male overrepresentation, but for the most part, pretty even gender representation. Most patients were white, 83% in both groups. Um, not, so not great. Uh, race ethnicity distribution disease the median disease duration was about a year so 300 days so kind of a long time these are as we said earlier patients who are refractory but not only that some of these patients have had disease for many many years and 10 15 years in some cases there's some methotrexate use, about 10%. I don't think methotrexate works very well for this disease. And at the time of the disease flare, uh, the median glucocorticoid dose was 10 milligrams a day, which feels good. I mean, th that's the group of people who I would be reaching for something like this. So what did they find? Let me first go through their components of sustained remission. So with regard to that one that I talked about earlier, the clinical remission at week 12, you know, the people who got Cerulemab did better, 47% versus 38%. So it's a 9% difference. Did the fact that we, uh, you know, dissolved the acute phase reactants influence that? I think yes. Does this look like a real benefit? I think yes. At week 12, uh, what dose of steroids were people on? Well, the Cerulemab group would have been on two milligrams. And at week 12, the placebo group would have been on eight milligrams. So you know, there's a real difference in the steroid dose already. And the fact that the people in the Cerulemab group still did better, I think is notable and, and worthwhile. All right. So going on other components of the, of the sustained remission, you know, the absence of disease flare, this is, this is quite a bit different. This, this went over the whole, the whole study period. That was 55% versus 33% for the placebo group. So 
22% patients didn't flare. Um, I think that's useful, and that, that's certainly an encouraging sign. Sustained normalization of CRP, this is nonsense. I think it's nonsense that it was included. Predictably, it was very big. It was, a you know, another again, a 22% difference between groups. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, like, if you take Cerulemab, you don't, you, you, your CRP normalizes. So, if anything, that number looks a little low to me for people who are given Cerulemab. Um, and then adherence to the prednisone taper, you know, there's a 25% difference. 50% of people in the Cerulemab group uh, versus a quarter of people in the placebo group um, um, adhered to the prednisone taper. So that, that's a good sign, right? That shows that uh, both of these drugs or both of these, the, the Cerulemab regimen worked better. Um, and that's in the context, remember, of not that much steroid as background. So the, looking at the composite of this outcome, you know, sustained remission um, at week 52, 28% versus 10%. So an 18% difference that favored Cerulemab group. Then sustained remission not including the CRP and the ESR, uh, 32 versus 14%, again, favoring the Cerulemab group. And again, caveat, I mean, the, the, the investigators knew about the ESR, so there's certainly some unblinding and some unmasking that occurred. Do I think that that unblinding accounted for this difference? I, I don't, actually. I think that this is a real difference between these groups. A couple other things to note before we move on. You know, the glu mean glu the cumulative glucocorticoid dose was less in the Cerulemab group, something like 750 milligrams versus 2,000 milligrams. So you spared patients a hefty whack of steroids. And then something that I'm always interested in and always excited about, I mean, the quality of life was better in the group that got Cerulemab. And this is, again, something where I don't think this is all unblinding. It, it really does look like people who got the Cerulemab um, did better. Facet fatigue scores were better. Um, SF36 physical and mental were better. And it, the mental component score, people in the placebo group actually did worse over the course of the trial. And people in the Cerulemab group actually did better. So um, that, that's pretty encouraging. Hack DI improved more in the Cerulemab group. So um, patients who got this drug, had fewer flares, felt better, got less steroids. So it's pretty encouraging. Now, the, looking at adverse events, you know, there wasn't too much that was too exciting, but 15% of people in the Cerulemab group developed neutropenia compared to zero in the placebo group. That That is higher than I would expect. I, I do see a fair number of uh, cytopenias with, in association with interleukin-6 inhibition, but that, that was higher than I would have expected. So uh, just a thing to note that the neutropenia, and I've seen thrombocytopenia, these are, these are real things that happened with these drugs. All right. And that, that, so that's about it. I mean, how do we bring this all together? Well, let me give a couple thoughts. You know, my first thought is that when you look at the, the sustained remission in this trial, it was pretty low. I mean, when you think about your patients with PMR, I mean, I, putting people on a 52-week steroid taper are 10% of my patients. Really, the only, that's how many people are in remission. I mean, I would say 30 to 40% of people will go the 52 weeks and, and do just fine. So I think that reflects a couple things. The first is that this is a clinical trial. So the outcomes were very stringent and um, people who you probably would not say flared would have been considered a flare. So I have so many people who are like, hey, I went from eight milligrams to seven milligrams and my shoulder stiffness came back. And I say, all right, we'll go back to eight. They go back to eight. They contact me three days later. They say, yeah, I feel okay now. And I say, all right, take that for a month and then try to go back down. I mean, that's kind of a flare, I guess, but it's not the kind of flare where I think that I would be super worried in the sense that, you know, like a GCA flare where you're worried about vision loss or something like that. It's kind of a, I just call it a, a stretch. You know, we stretch the taper a little bit. 
So my first caveat is that patients in this trial did poorly. And I think that's partly because of that. And it's also partly because this was a refractory group. I mean, a lot of these people had a PMR for quite a long time. And a lot of them were flaring um, over 10 milligrams or around 10 milligrams of steroid. And a lot of patients with PMR don't flare that high. A lot of them flare at lower numbers, smaller numbers. And do I really need to give people who are flaring at three milligrams um, and could do just fine if we bump to four? Do I really need to give them a, an IL-6 inhibitor? I, I don't think so. So th this study is sort of tailored towards people who had PMR, which was refractory after three months of therapy, and which seemed to flare at a relatively high number. But within that context, I actually think that this was a pretty good trial. Now, the 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 inflammatory markers are bothersome to me. I really wish they just blinded the ESR as well. I don't think it was necessary to have that there to help investigators, whatever that means. Help investigators become unblinded is more like it. Um, I don't think they needed that for the trial. They could have blinded to both. And one of the other trials that they actually mentioned in their discussion, patients or the local physicians were blinded to both. So it's possible they should have done it. But uh, I don't think it's given the size of this benefit. I actually don't think think that it's all due to unblinding. So I don't know, kind of a, a caveat there. So, and then the other thing is that this is not done on patients who are new onset disease. This isn't the patient who walks into your clinic and has new onset PMR and says, doc, what, should, what do you want to give me? I'm not starting those people on Cerulemab upfront based on this trial. But this has influenced my practice up front. And what I have decided to do is taper steroid more quickly. So my standard PMR taper went from about nine months down to four to six months now. Um, because my feeling is that in the context of having a DMAR that would be effective were someone to flare, if they're one of these people who flares, you know, now I have a, an avenue for those patients. And having that avenue to me means that I could be a little more aggressive up front with my steroid tapers. And some of my patients do great. You know, over four to six months, they taper right off and they probably didn't need very much steroid at all. Uh, and so those people, I'm also not going to give them IL-6 inhibitor. But some patients really do flare early. And if they are going to be one of those patients, I think that it's probably in their best interest to start a drug like this sooner uh, to help prevent them from developing long-term uh, long side effects. Um, uh, long-term steroid exposure, all that jazz. So uh, I bring this all together. I mean, I like this trial a lot more than I expected. Uh, it has changed my practice. I'm tapering people more quickly up front now. And then I am prescribing Cerulemab uh, if they flare at above probably 7.5 milligrams. That's about right. Certainly above 10 uh, or under 10, I have a conversation. Under five, I don't give people an IL-6 inhibitor. If you flare at two milligrams of steroid, I'm going to bump you back to three and taper it again slowly. And this is almost homeopathic. Prednisone. And I don't think we need to be giving people an injectable medication that causes neutropenia 15% of the time, according to this trial. Uh, I, I think that's a bit aggressive. So that is how this has changed my practice. Uh, overall, a good trial. I enjoyed it. And if you would like to hear from Baskar Dasgupta, uh, one of the senior author on this study, uh, be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks for our next podcast. Um, be sure to also check me out on Twitter and on Figure one, where I have a newsletter, would love it if you all go to my website, ebroom.com, and join. I'm under contract for another year, so I'm going to be putting out a, um, a, a twice-monthly newsletter with Anisha Dua, and we would both love for all of you to follow us there. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in, and have a great day. <laughs>